situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SAT Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and this week I am joined by a very special guest, Pierre Lescaudron. Hello, everybody. This week we are going to be discussing post-imperialism. That term post-imperialism is a rather general term, I suppose. just means after an imperial era. But... We're using it in a rather more particular sense, and the sense is of what the world might be like, could be like, or should be like after the current imperial era, which, if you're you're not aware, uh, is the empire largely dominated or controlled by the USA, but essentially a global empire. Uh, has been for quite some time. Um, And the reason we're discussing, or we're going to discuss, what the world might or could or should be like after that empire is because, again, in case you haven't noticed, there's a lot of signs around that this particular empire is at the point of going the way of all previous empires, which is a somewhat catastrophic or um, impressive collapse. And of course, being global in nature, that can't but affect the entire world. Um, And we also have reason to believe that this particular uh, imperial collapse or collapse of the global social, global imperial order, effectively, uh, may be worse than than previous ones. Uh, And we'll discuss that uh, during the show. But, yes, so our minds are are on this show and and have been for for quite some time actually been tending towards thoughts and ideas around what a a new or a different world order effectively would look like and should or could look like. And uh, we've been thinking in those terms because uh, we think it's time that we should uh, for the reasons I just gave, uh, because it may be necessary very soon. But... um, Maybe first and foremost, um, what we might want to introduce or discuss uh, uh, discuss before we get into the details of what a new a new global order or global society might look like is why, uh, and this maybe is a good question for you, Pierre. Why is um, <clears throat> what are what are the signs or what are the symptoms that suggest that the current global order as defined by the American Empire, is reaching a point where it's no longer sustainable or that it might collapse uh, and we might need to do something or rebuild in some way afterwards? Well, that's an interesting point. <clears throat> because, actually, when you look at human affairs, you see this imminent collapse on every front, basically. Economic, financial, social, the wars, 
the growing discrepancies, the demonstrations, exhaustion of natural resources. All the indicators are in a red, in a bright red zone. At the same time, and uh, it may not be a coincidence, you look at uh, environmental factors, earth changes, and you see the increase in cometary activity, the surprisingly quiet sun, the extremely strong El Nino, the meandering jet streams, the dying Gulf streams, the gas at gazing, the increase in volcanic and seismic activity. And then you realize that on both fronts, human affairs and earth changes, things are really eating up. And uh, it seems obvious to me that in those two sectors, it cannot last longer. So the only question is, the question is not anymore, will it collapse? But the question is, which one of those two vectors would deliver the fatal blow? Will human beings or psychopaths in charge manage to eradicate humanity before cosmic forces intervene and destroy humanity? But the outcome seems uh, sealed at this point. Oh, okay. Um, well, looking at previous civilizational collapses, that at least some of which um, happened in the context of, an, of, a, of there being a, an empire of some description. Um, let's look at the Roman Empire. I mean, people are aware that the Roman Empire collapsed. That's fairly common knowledge. You can read it in any history book. The Roman Empire collapsed. But it was, um, I think, official history records that it happened in a, in a gradual sense. It just decayed over a long period of time. You had the kind of um, corruption and social uh, decay that you have today for example, I mean, we don't know for sure, but there's evidence for that. Um, and that it happened over a long period of time, and then eventually just, I mean, history records that the Roman Empire just simply kind of slowly went downhill and to the point where it just kind of broke apart from the inside, or, and the barbarians came and say, uh, saw the opportunity to take over and came in and took over. And it was more of a gradual collapse that wasn't catastrophic, but I think there's maybe a different take, and I think Laura has... Uh, uh, written about this in some of our books as well, um, that there, there's more to the truth of the, of the situation than that, that there, it wasn't simply a social decline, but rather it was sped along. The collapse of the Roman Empire was sped along or even caused primarily by environmental oh, uh, yes, events. Um, or that the two went together. At least. Both are true, actually, indeed. On one side, there is a gradual decay on a social level over decades and decades, things getting worse and worse on a human level. That's what we've been witnessing for decades when uh, observing the modern, the so-called modern world. However, when you look at uh, data, archaeological data in particular, you realize that around 540 AD, everything stops dramatically. No more coins being produced. No more buildings. No more settlements. Uh, no more trade. No more archaeological artifacts. No more pottery. 
particularly in the western part of the Roman Empire, because at this time, 6th century AD, the Roman Empire had been split. It seems that Constantinople, side, the eastern side of the Roman Empire, was less, to some extent, less affected. But for the western part of the Roman Empire, it was obliterated. It was removed from the map. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality conveyed by the hard science. Right, but evidence. that's not part of the official history. As, 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 as a causal factor to the well, collapse there, of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> there are many theories, many hypotheses trying to explain the disappearance of the Roman Empire. Barbarians, decay, finance, uh, critical mass, not enough food mm. for all those uh, Roman uh, citizens and, and other individuals. There are many theories. Some books, some theories propose a more catastrophic approach. Mm. And I think it's uh, the only one that fits mm. the archaeological fact. Right, and the interesting thing about the collapse of the Roman Empire is uh, the evidence surrounding the collapse of, Roman, of the Roman Empire and the date that you just gave, which was five, around 540 AD, is that there is uh, archaeological evidence <coughs> to, that points to a, uh, a fairly catastrophic uh, earth change or environmental uh, disaster uh, at that time, and I think it's best summed up by the, through, in the work of uh, Mike Bailey, who is uh, who studies among other things, he studies the tree ring growth uh, from you know hundreds and thousands of years ago, and he found that tree ring growth uh, was significantly reduced uh, for quite a number of years around that period of, of 540, and he attributes this to uh, a, a meteorite or a comet uh, strike. Uh, that effectively, uh, you know, burned up most of Western Europe. You mentioned the Western Roman Empire, uh, and that the, the debris thrown up into the atmosphere from this uh, kind of rock smashing into the into the planet uh, blotted out the sun for several years, and that caused the reduction in tree growth, and is seen in the mm -hmm. reduction in tree in tree ring uh, growth. But of course, that's that kind of catastrophism is not really allowed in official history, uh, at least not in the, in the dominant discourse or in your school textbooks, uh, even if that evidence is there. Uh, historians do not want to go there, and they're supported by the, the dominant discourse of governments and, and the media, etc., that uh, effectively you're not allowed to include such events uh, in history as being uh, defining moments in relatively recent history that could have caused the collapse of civilizations. The evidence is there archaeologically, just not, uh, but it's kind of rejected emotionally, I suppose, by, by historians, because emotionally it's unpleasant. Yeah, that, that's a very important point you emphasize, emphasize in here. <clears throat> we live in a world dominating, dominated by a uniformitarian, linear creed. And uh, both the elites and the citizens have some interest in perpetuating this illusion of linear, harmonious, progressive progress until the, the infinite, never-ending. Um, of course, the elite have interest in perpetuating this lie because their main source of legitimacy, i.e. the belief in the masses that the elites have the ability to protect them, relies on this paradigm. If you acknowledge 
the fundamentally cyclical and catastrophist nature of history, elites are useless because they cannot protect us. And on the citizen side, as you said, there is an emotional investment. Believing in this lie make you feel safe. Okay, we won't be annihilated by the mega volcanic eruption, a giant tsunami, a major cometary impact, a flash freezing event, because we live in a linear uniformitarian world. Yeah, and that obviously has serious implications. That that inability to, or the rejection of of, of the idea of cyclical catastrophes and the the evidence for it, the hard evidence for it, it poses a real problem for um, for society, um, at least in terms of the exploration of of that idea and what the causal factors might be and. As you wrote about in your book, Earth Changes and the Human Cosmic Connection, it may be that there is some uh, correlation between the the state, the moral state, let's say, of society, of any given global society, and uh, these kind of um, environmental, major environmental upsets or catastrophes that, uh, to a certain extent, could be seen as a almost as, as a judgment. Because it's very hard to get away from that idea when you when you read this into this theory and this idea. It's very hard to get away from the idea that, that there's a kind of a um, a judgment aspect of it. I mean, and we can argue that that that's not the way it is. But when you posit a corrupt, immoral, decaying society and uh, it being correlated with you know the planet basically. Uh, Acting up, let's say, and and wiping out a lot of people, uh, it's hard not to see those two uh, things in a, from a, from a judgmental perspective, essentially from a at least certainly from a cause and effect. Maybe I'm going too far into the the judgment thing, but certainly cause and effect. Yes, but which way? What is because correlation is not causation. What is clear when you look at historical data that repeatedly civilization, humanity has been wiped out from the planet. Uh, maybe 80%, 90%. You have the 2400 BC event where most civilization from the Bronze Age suddenly disappeared. You have the, the end of the Roman Empire that you just uh, mentioned. You also have uh, more recently and more limited, but uh, quite impressive as well, the Dark Ages, uh, around 1100 AD the Black Death, and all the accompanying earth changes that are often neglected because we focus on the, on the Black Plague, Black Death. Each time, those cosmic events were correlated with times of great social disruption, great social unrest, crisis, imperialistic abuses, so now, is it enough to draw a conclusion that there is a cause and an effect? Not necessarily. Imagine you're on the beach and you put two sticks in the sand. One stick is closer to the sea and one stick is further from the sea. Then a wave comes. One stick will fall because it's pushed by the wave and then a second stick will fall because it's pushed by the same wave but it's further away from the sea. <clears throat> now, if you can't see this wave... You see stick number one to fall, falling, and then stick number two falling, and you can draw the following conclusion. Okay, the fall of jaw of stick number one had some effects. The fall 
of stick number two, because you cannot see the wave. So maybe those cosmic and human crises are not necessarily cause effects, or maybe they're just both the effects of the same invisible cause. Mm -hmm. Another possibility that our Judeo-Christian mind or belief or culture um, leads us to believe in the, this judgment thing, which might be part of the equation because you can have a loop as well. It may be reversed as well. Cosmic and human affairs might interact mm -hmm. in both directions. And uh, to give you an example of this reverse causality, what if human beings today are picking up on an unconscious level through some kind of cosmic information field the coming disaster, the imminent disaster, mm -hmm. and picking up that, it leads them, it leads them, uh, it, leads, it makes them distressed. Mm -hmm. They freak out. They don't know why, and that's why they behave in a more and more chaotic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the um, a better way to look at it than, than judgment. Certainly, we only have our own experience uh, to draw on here in terms of us living in the current uh, empire at the, or at the end of the current empire right now. But it seems that the way the world is going, the direction in which the world is going. Um, is not a good direction uh, for anybody on the planet. And it's not unreasonable or irrational to posit that if it's allowed to continue under the stewardship of psychopaths uh, in power, which, which it is, um, that things on this planet could get very, very bad and very uh, unpleasant for pretty much everybody on the planet if it's allowed to continue on uh, unchecked or unchanged. Uh, and in that sense... Uh, a major upheaval that, to a certain extent, resets the clock, societally speaking, uh, would be a good thing. So it just depends on your perspective. You can see it as a judgment or you could see it as something that, well, if you really take stock of the state of the world and where it's likely to go, uh, we're talking here police state, we're talking endless war, we're talking, you know, just psychopaths run amok, basically allowed to do whatever they want, which is ultimately just destroy... Uh, then it's not going to be a, a really pleasant place for anybody to be alive on. Uh, in uh, So in that sense, something that sets the clock back to, to zero to start again is a blessing, or could be seen as a blessing if you see it uh, for what it really is effectively. And the fact of the matter is it's not about different perspectives here. It's not like I can see it from that negative, let's say negative, dark perspective. It's all going horrible and someone else can say, well, I don't think it's so bad. The bottom line is whether you or I uh, have different opinions doesn't matter. There is an objective reality and... Who's going to disagree that uh, that the endless war and the war on terror and the uh, wars for profit and the slaughter of civilians and the increasing technology that facilitates that is not a good place for it to go? And if you look at the data, the psychological or the clinical data on um, on on psychopathy and the nature of psychopaths and, and, and what they do, and you draw a reasonable conclusion, which I think is reasonable, uh, that we do live under the, the rule of psychopaths and power, then uh, it's not hard to see that the most likely uh, future that awaits us is, is, is one uh, that's pretty dark. Uh, so in that sense, that is a more objective assessment, just looking at the hard facts. I mean, you can skip along and have your, your job and your life and your family and stuff uh, and, and think and believe that it will continue forever. But the evidence suggests that it will not continue forever in that way, um, uh, both from <laughs> both from the 
the perspective of living under the rule of psychopaths in power and also from the perspective of the changing environmental uh, situation. Uh, I mean, there's thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of people around the world over the past few years who have had their entire lives uh, turned upside down. And I mean, f uh, to, to the extent of being, well, obviously people, million, millions, of pe millions of people have been killed, but also uh, millions more, many millions more have been uh, evicted or otherwise um, uh, forced to leave their houses, leave their homes and, and become refugees. Uh, and this is through a combination of both environmental changes and the work of warmongering psychopaths in positions of power. So that can spread. There's no reason to think that that kind of situation that what they have so far created, particularly in the past 15 years, would not continue uh, to occur. And also the the changes that we've seen on the environmental level in the past 15 years, there's no reason to believe that that will not continue. We've already seen the results of those two things combined together, which is, as I just said, the destruction of people's livelihoods and their 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 communities and their, their, their very homes. Uh, so there's no reason to think that that will not spread. Uh, that's so much, I mean, that's based on data. That That's not, that's not my perspective or your perspective. It's based on hard data that every, but no one can, no one can deny that has already happened, let's say, over the past 15 years. So the only point of contention then is, is it going to continue or is it somehow all going to stop and maybe go back to a better, better situation or, or is it going to continue? I don't see any reason to think that it's going to stop. It, it, it isn't stopping at this point. So you really have to grasp at straws to decide that, okay, I know it's bad, but it's going to get better. How is it going to get better? Uh, well, it's not. I mean, there's, no, there's no real solution to anybody here making it better, which is what gets back to my original point, which is it seems that under those conditions, uh, particularly from the point of view of the, the effects on society of psychopaths and positions of power, some kind of an environmental upheaval that, that serves to stop that rot, effectively stop that uh, that destructive course that on which psychopaths push uh, society is is a blessing. It, it's the only thing. When people say, "How can we change society?" You can't, but nature can. Yeah, it's a matter of perspective. You're right, and um, we should not dismiss the hypothesis of uh, the hypothesis where human chaos leads to quote-unquote judgment or cosmic reactions at, uh, at least. If we analyze the situation from a nature or life principle, universe perspective, human, psychopath don't matter. We are speck of dust in the universe. <clears throat> what matters is the life principle that animates every single part of the universe where any entity from microscopic to macroscopic to astronomic strives, develops towards more creation, complexity, organization, intelligence, information. If an area of the universe, a species, fails to serve, to embody this very principle of life, there may be indeed some universal law that triggers some kind of reset mm -hmm. for, in order that this life principle of creation mm. 
prevail again. Yeah, so an analogy could be a, a biochemist or a pharmacist in a lab with a Petri dish and you're growing a culture in a Petri dish and if for some reason it gets contaminated by uh, some other organism that uh, just kind of runs rampant across the, the Petri dish and destroys your original organism and makes it makes that particular Petri dish uh, un, um, and not, uh, not very conducive to your experiments anymore, that it's no longer... Uh, conducive to life effectively, the kind of life that, that it, it, you decided it was for, well then the, the biochemist simply cleans it out with a bit of a deluge maybe, you know, uh, a tidal wave of, of water from the faucet, we'll just wash it clean and you can start again. Like a gardener, because a gardener, right, a gardener. is very close to this life principle and uh, you plant a plant in a pot. It grows well, it produces more complexity, more beauty, fruits and leaves and you're happy with it and you keep it and you take care of it if for whatever reason the plant is victim of some parasites right. or some chemicals or some disease and doesn't serve these uh, ideals but you remove it and plant another one mm. hoping that this time you will get the flowers the growth the beauty the life you expect right and not even that but there's also uh, using the analogy of the plant, uh, the plant produces you know complexity and, and flowers and, and uh, grows, but that those flowers, for example, in themselves provide um, are part of a, a broader system. For example, with insects, bees, for example, coming to be able to, uh, to, to to pollinate those flowers and carry on life elsewhere, etc. So it's it's kind of interconnected. So, but in the same sense, if that is no longer possible, if that uh, for example, that plant becomes uh, parasitically infected uh, and, and ultimately dies or, or is threatened or no longer produces in, in the way that it should, is no longer useful to creation effectively, well then, yeah, the, the gardener removes it and, and starts again. Uh, and that's as it should be because who wants a, a dead plant or a dead planet effectively? It's no, it's no good for anybody. I mean, if the idea is that we're all here to um, to live lives, our lives and to have experiences um, <clears throat> and the planet was designed uh, in a certain way for, for that to, to happen, uh, well then when those conditions are compromised and it's no longer possible, and here I'm talking about obviously the effect of psychopaths in positions of power where they effectively could turn the planet into a slave planet where there would be no longer the possibility for the breadth or, or the depth of, of experiences. That If you imagine uh, everybody who was born and raised on this planet was born into slavery, into chains, and went down the mine every day or, or, or somewhere uh, to, to simply work 12 hours a day or more uh, and then sleep and then get up and do the same thing until they died from exhaustion. Uh, you're talking about a fairly limited uh, experience there uh, for everybody, basically. Uh, so if that wasn't the... Part of the design of the planet, if that's the wrong, if that's going in the wrong direction in terms of uh, it prohibits or inhibits the uh, a broad, uh, uh, a large amount of of experience of different experiences. Well, then, effectively, the experiment has gone wrong, and you need to remove the infection effectively, or, or clean the the environment so that it can start again and be put back to. Uh, its original state, let's say, or so that the, the kind of diversity can can reestablish itself, and therefore beings or sentient beings that that live on this planet can enjoy a, a broader level of experience as yes. was intended. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, we're wondering if uh, 
a major reset? Is it a curse or blessing? Obviously, it depends on the perspectives. From a life principle perspective, from a universe perspective, it's a, it's rather a positive thing, or it's not a negative thing anyway. Um, and from a, you mentioned a dead planet, and from a planet perspective, um, this is certainly a positive thing as well. It's a cleansing. Mm -hmm. It's a cleansing of an exceptional environment because I think something we have lost and uh, that is really tragic. It's, uh, we lost all this sense of amazement and awe as witness of life on planet Earth. The wonders, I mean, it seems so cliche to say that and uh, probably because it resonates more with emotions and sentiments than with words and intellect, but the planets offer so many wonderful gifts to its inhabitants. Mm -hmm. Those rivers and those mountains and those forests and those oceans. And it's such a wonderful complex of harmony and life and interconnection and beauty. And on this level, the planetary level, the major reset is a blessing because mm -hmm. indeed humanity today as it is, is a very destructive force mm -hmm. that even threatens the life of the very planet mm -hmm. it inhabits. Yeah. I mean, probably uh, most of the listening can, can resonate with this and anybody, if they have half a, uh, if they have any awareness, uh, can resonate with that. I mean, you can probably think of your, of a local river, a river big enough to kind of swim in. And you'd probably think twice about swimming in it, you know. And this is just a part of nature. But you'd think twice about swimming in it, and you'd be well advised to think twice about it because if you go and swim in it, you might come out with uh, with some kind of an infection. And this is just a part of nature that you can non that that because of human activity, uh, again under the stewardship of of psychopaths and positions of power, uh, have have destroyed many aspects uh, that of the planet of nature that was that was put here that was part of the ecosystem uh, that was there for us to, to enjoy and to explore and to understand and to investigate and to learn about, and instead we have kind of destroyed it. And you look at society as well. I mean, it's not just the mountains and the trees and the lakes, uh, all of that natural wonder, but also the the mystery of it, the mystery involved in, in those things. I mean, there's so many mysteries about um, so many aspects of the, the natural world around us and that, that are ultimately going to kind of a non-physical or non-tangible reality that is very much a part of human beings as well. But that has largely been, uh, as far as recorded history goes, has been never been investigated, been ignored. And we've got to the point today where rather than actually doing uh, what we should do, which is explore the world around us and reality around us and, and plummets, you know, probe its depths essentially and learn from it and grow ourselves as a result. Uh, society today will look what people around you to do today with their with their average daily lives, look where their focus is. Um, the average person works in a kind of mind-numbing job that they don't like or if they have a job at all, uh, they're a slave effectively to, a, to a, a system, a corporate system, most people are. And um, those that aren't are, aren't much better off because in their spare time, effectively, they're just simply fixated and focused on activities that are the very antithesis of what I just described. They're extremely kind of entropic and subjective activities where a person's attention is focused either wholly on themselves and their own, their own 
subjective nature that doesn't involve others around them almost or, or, or the world around them. I mean, I'm talking about kind of, you know, video games or TV or, or just kind of mindless entertainment effectively that, that just distracts people, distracts people from the reality that we just described as, as something that they should be investigating and learning about. And of course, this is overseen and encouraged by the, the, the authorities. You know, science, of course, is, has been extremely derelict in its duty to do what I just said, which is investigate the truths of nature and, and, and explore uh, further and further all the time and bring that information to, uh, to, to, to humanity. And they do exactly the opposite. They, um, they encourage people to dissociate into mindless, uh, you know, puerile, inane uh, activities that, that do not do the exact opposite of expanding anyone's uh, awareness or understanding or knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not good, you know. And um, the interaction of uh, most people today has been shaped by the liberal ideology spread by the U.S. empire. And mostly it's a individualistic, consumerist and nihilistic components mm. that made us see the world as a mere list of disposable items, other individuals, all the wonders of nature are items to be picked up, used for our own selfish benefits and thrown away. There's no more sense of amazement, gratitude respect, interconnection. Mm. There is this uh, very dark and uh, narrow perception, vision of the world. Yeah, a cult of the self, effectively. Um, so there's, there can be no gratitude if everything is, is focused on yourself, effectively, and just <coughs> um, indulging your own uh, kind of grandiosity or illusions or your own sens sensatorial needs, let's say. Um, and, and not connecting them with anything outside of yourself, uh, becoming more and more entropic in that way. And of course, uh, that's you know, science. Science is, like I said, is direct in its duty to, to to investigate reality and nature. But also, religion is extremely direct in its in its duty to um, to encourage uh, an understanding of of ourselves, a broader. Uh, more expansive ever, uh, kind of widening and increasing understanding of human nature and, you know, effectively encouraging human evolution from a spiritual perspective, uh, that, that again, is, is, sh is cut short uh, by the dogma of mainstream religion, which is, um, which is very, uh, well, it's, it's very, what is it? It's not, I mean, certainly it doesn't... Um, it doesn't encourage uh, exploration or questioning uh, or um, of of spirituality. It basically delivers a a kind of digested fairly, yeah set of beliefs that uh, ensure a place in paradise. Right, is a very restrictive uh, description or vision of spirituality and all this potential. You face two very similar apparatus modern religions and science are both control tools designed to control 
the way individuals think and feel and make them basically subservient to the elites who rule the science system and religious systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, uh, we probably don't need to tell people listening, uh, but uh, we don't need to tell them too much about the ills of, of modern society because um, they're probably well aware of them. But um, So having, having summed up, or briefly summed up, the major ills, the major problems with society in that way, um, it's, not hard, it's not hard to realize or to accept the idea that we might need a new, a new paradigm, a new template, let's say, for, for how society could or should be. Uh, of course, people probably have done this, people have done this countless times throughout human history, imagining a different type of society. But what makes our particular uh, theorizing or um, imagining in this, in this sense more pertinent is that it may well, as we've, as we've been saying, it may well be a very good time uh, or a very apt time to, to be doing such a thing because, uh, as we've just been describing earlier on, that the uh, society tends, historically speaking, societies that develop these kind of characteristics and traits that we've been describing tend to um, go the way of previous civilizations, which is collapse. And in that situation, obviously, yeah, someone somewhere is going to have to uh, come up with a new structure for society, of course, it would be a very bad idea to try and um, remake it on the same basis as the old one. I mean, we would hope that people who, uh, and certainly in the past as well, people who survived certain uh, civilizational collapses didn't say, let's, uh, let's just redo it, you know, let's do it over again. Maybe they did, but it would seem uh, a bit illogical to do that, at least if you have any understanding of or if you could put two and two together and say yeah this society collapsed because it was corrupt uh, it collapsed effectively under its own weight of corruption and uh, there was something uh, fundamentally wrong uh, uh, with or, or something had gone wrong with society so let's not create it in the same way let's create a new society so uh, let's start on uh, <laughs> let's start on our our imagining or our ideas for uh, or how a society could and should be structured. And before we get into that, I mean, I just want to say that uh, throughout this conversation, if anybody wants to call in and throw in any ideas, or if you've got any major complaints about anything that we say, uh, something along the lines of, you know, oh my God, you can't do that, that's totally wrong, then feel free to click the speak with the host button and uh, you can have your say. Um, so... Well, pick pick a topic then that we want yeah. to. <clears throat> Before going uh, correct further into the details of this uh, ideal society or this better world we called post-imperialism, um, there are two remarks I would like to make. First, <clears throat> while writing, while addressing those features one by one, I realized that a lot of the solutions that were proposed were just the result of common sense and basic logic. And then I realized that the current modern society and the level of destructiveness and entropy has reached is quite a feature. It's quite amazing and it requires a lot of efforts because it's totally contrary to human nature. Well, that's a hallmark of polarization. 
our modern society has been hijacked by psychopathic leaders who impose their own vision of the world, entropy, destruction, suffering. Human beings naturally do not tend towards those negative values. They tend to go the opposite direction. So most measures there are just human, simple, common sense based. And the other remark I would like to make is that I didn't come up <coughs> by myself to, to this solution, to these conclusions. It's been the fruit of discussions around the table, kitchen table, with uh, friends, with our extended family, and uh, with Laura in particular. And what was amazing during this discussion is to see how people had been giving thoughts to the idea of an ideal world before being prompted, before being asked. There seems to be, to me, it suggests there's a craving and a longing in people for a better society, for a better world. And it's not a mere uh, illusion or dream. They are thinking about it in very consistent, very coherent, very tangible and logical ways. Um, yeah, these this were two salient points that appeared during the process. Now about post-imperialism, what are the, the main features? Maybe the most important one is community. And here again, there's nothing new. For millennia, human beings have been living in community-based society, village, tribe, small groups. And the, f the features of those communities are not necessarily... Uh, the most important features are not necessarily material or tangible. We can talk about the architecture, the way, the logistics and transportation uh, laws. But what really matters is intangible. It's the level of solidarity, of trust, of bonding, this esprit de corps that animates this human group. And then that's key. It's intangible, it's closely correlated to something else that is intangible, but so important in our human lives, culture, through arts, science, writing, education, parenting, all those implicit and explicit information that literally shape the way we think and even the way our subconscious, that is often in charge, reacts and see the world. And maybe a last <clears throat> fundamental point is uh, this notion of meritocracy. You know how modern society, liberalism has been praising so much of democracy and equality. Well, there's no democracy. People have no power. They have only the power to shut up and to be slaves. And there's no equality. There's no equality between someone at the top of the social ladder and someone at the bottom of the social ladder. They have nothing in common. They don't even meet. Um, the post-imperialistic society is meritocratic. So we don't maintain this illusion of egalitarianism. It's meritocratic, but it's based on real, true, positive merit. And what is this positive merit? It's not the recklessness or the individualism or the ego that are praised in our modern society through media and other vectors, but it's very simply service to the community. And that's very interesting because the more you serve the community, the more you gain what we call community points. 
a lot of rights, <coughs> duties, regulations are more regulated according to the number of community points held by a citizen. And here reconcile two seemingly mutually exclusive principles or goals, individual interest versus collective interest, community interest. And most ideologies of the 20th century fail just here. Liberalism is the pinnacle of individualism. And you see the results, I won't even describe it. We see the error of the situation. You have other ideologies who have disappeared, but who prevail in some places and sometimes, like communism, where the subject, the sociological subject, the main component is the working class. Right? You know what it led to. And you have um, um, fascism or Nazism, which is a form of fascism, where the, the sociological subject, the core component, is the nation or the race. And you know what it led to. So I think this way of correlating, of reuniting collective interest and individual interest is a very important feature. And now I was talking about those 20th century destructive ideology, liberalism, communism, fascism, where we don't want to throw the baby, we didn't want to throw the, the baby with the bathwater. Sure, there are very destructive aspects in those ideology, and we won't keep them, of course, but there may be, there are interesting ideas in those ideologies, and we try to apply them in the best ways to get the best component of each. Um, it, strikes me, it strikes me that uh, a meritocracy is, uh, you know, you said uh, post-imperialism would be effectively a meritocracy, uh, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't mean that people, that there are, there are those who are favored or preferred or, uh, you know, given better treatment, let's say, over others simply on, on the basis of merit. Of course, there's a, there's a kind of safeguard against uh, anyone being... Because to a certain extent, you could say that uh, the imperial order that we've been living under today is a meritocracy in, yeah. in the sense... Oligarchy, yeah. In the sense that... Uh, but it's based on what what is held in merit, effectively. What is the exactly. merit? So that's the important point, because... Uh, but uh, going further than that, I would say that we actually have an uh, uh, the imperial order that we have today is an anti uh, meritocracy, effectively, where you have someone like Donald Trump, mm -hmm. who, okay, maybe he embodies a lot of the traits of uh, some Americans or some people around the world, but certainly I think he he makes many people recoil. Uh, in horror at, at at his general persona, his beliefs, his attitudes, and the, the things he says and does, um, but yet, uh, yet he is someone who is being, you know, groomed effectively to be the leader of the free world, you know. And he's a he's an idiot, you know. The guy is an idiot. It's like the movie Idiocracy, only it's worse. Uh, so we live in a in in the imperial era. Era we have um, those who are least. Mm -hmm. Eligible to serve, uh, who are the ones who are selected to serve to 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 hold power, um, and I'm not just talking here about the hidden characteristics of of psychopaths, for example, where you can have a very charismatic psychopath who appears to have all the qualities, but behind the scenes is 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 doing the opposite. In the case of Donald Trump that I just mentioned, uh, it's not hidden; it's it's, <laughs> it's on show for everyone to see. This guy is an idiot. So 
it's not even hidden anymore, and yet he is still being uh, held up as eligible to hold hold power and to be a leader effectively. So it's that that's that for me is a sign. You know, things have really reached the end point effectively when when you see that these people who have been ruling for so long and are ineligible to rule because of their psychopathic nature. Uh, it's one thing for those people to rule because they get away through lies and manipulations. They, they cover up their true nature. But when you have someone like Donald Trump who really doesn't hide the fact that he's an idiot, yet he's still promoted and accepted apparently by many people because he's, we have to assume he's being voted for, he's, being, he's winning a lot of uh, votes for to, to be eligible to run for president, um, you have to assume that in some way that uh, that, that polarization process of society has really taken effect where the ordinary people look at someone like Donald Trump and say, yes, <laughs> he's my man, you know, <laughs> yes. I, you listen, when he stands up and as part of his presidential debate, he, uh, one of his, uh, you know, one of his points uh, that argue, according to him, in favor of him being eligible to be the leader of the free world is the size of his genitals. And no one thinks that's a bad idea or no one thinks there's a problem with that. Or Okay, some people do, but a lot of people don't. Well, then, at least for a significant percentage of the population in that country, in America, there's a serious problem with those, uh, with that percentage of the, of the population. Uh, yeah, it's uh, <coughs> it relates to this uh, inversion of value I was mentioning before, where it's a hallmark of uh, final stage polarization. It's described by Lobachevsky in quite uh, clear terms. When a society is so corrupted, so twisted, individuals should lead, individuals display high enough level of creativity, honesty, generosity, intelligence, knowledge, are people that today, in today's society, are hiding. People who are persecuted. Mm. It's people who are ostracized. And on the, very, on the contrary, when you look at the top of the social ladder, for example, in the political field that you described, you have uh, Hillary Clinton, you have Donald Trump, you have Sarah Palin, you have John Cameron, mm -hmm. you have Francois Hollande. You have the, the very scum of humanity that is at the top and that has millions of human lives in their hands. So, yeah, we are walking on, the, on our heads. Yeah. Um, okay. So, obviously, uh, the, the point here was uh, we have a problem uh, with the current order in terms of uh, the people least eligible to rule are, are ruling, and it has got worse and worse over the past, let's say, 100, 200 years. Progressively, it seems it's got worse as, as time has passed to the point where we have a complete another idiot, uh, or several of them. We have, like clear psychopath uh, in, in Hillary Clinton. Clinton, we have a raging narcissist in Donald Trump as the two front runners for the, 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 the office of President of the United States. Um, 
so in our in in, in our post imperial world um the idea is that society would be structured in such a way that such people would not ever get into the position where they would be able to go on television and say, I should be president because I've got a big... Yeah, well, <clears throat> our thought about this topic is that uh, there is uh, no political campaign because... Uh, it's not about uh, popularity. It's not about uh, spellbinding. It's about competency and moral integrity. So there is no political speech. There's no money invested in meetings. Individuals at the community levels are put in a pool list of candidates according to the level of community points. So they are nominated by a group in the community that says, okay, here are the 10 highest ranking community point individuals in our community. They are the candidates. After, of course, the candidates can decline the offer. Then they will be replaced by the next one on the community point list. And how do people earn community points? Oh, they mean, basically, through their, the way they help and contribute to the community, there are many, many, many ways. Mm. Um, it's, Competency, for example, in your job, mm. say you're a doctor and uh, patients in a recurring and demonstrable mm -hmm. uh, right. way uh, praise mm -hmm. the quality of your work, it will lead to gaining community points. Right. So, I mean, that example of a doctor, for example, the doctor that received the most positive feedback from patients over uh, quite a, you know, a long period of time um, would earn a lot of community points. And that would take care of, for example the idea of, of compassion. Because you could be fairly sure that a doctor that receives a lot of positive feedback, or the most positive feedback of all doctors in, in a certain community uh, from patients, that that was a compassionate individual. Uh, and, and competent. A compassionate and comp competent individual. So that person would be selected or put forward mm -hmm. for a, a kind of leadership or a representative role exactly. in that particular area of medicine, for example, uh, community care, health care, that kind of thing. Uh, the same would apply to uh, scientific uh, disciplines or engineering or, you know, humanities or history or all, all different areas, basically. You mm -hmm. could take, like, the, the list of faculties in a university and, uh, and you'd find. Um, and that's, so those people learn community points in that way and in, in other ways. Um, and ultimately, the idea of our post-imperial society here is... Just to go back to the basics a little bit, we I think we described it as um, communities at the lowest, uh, local, lo most local level would be uh, no more than uh, 3,000 people, would be one community, let's say. Um, and then above that, uh, within countries, within nation states, you would have a maximum of more or less 3 million mm -hmm. people. And then uh, spread out from that, you would have... Um, obviously of nations around the world and this creating everything from scratch obviously you know the, it would take a long period of, i suppose a long a relatively long period of time a few generations let's say to to establish this kind of a situation but ultimately you have a whatever number of people are on the planet you would have a a planet of nation states of 3 million people or less and the communities within those countries of 3000 people 
and then above that you would have a kind of uh, something like a UN mm -hmm. and throughout these kind of tiers at an organi organizational level uh, there would be that selective process mm -hmm. for people to be representatives uh, of the community of the state and of uh, a, yes. a, a global kind of organization that would be based on uh, ultimately based on community points uh, ultimately these people come from communities and would have served in communities and like you just described the way that they earn points and and are become eligible for leadership roles effectively exactly. or roles of responsibility over other people is showing that at the beginning they have they will have shown that they have a, a strong proclivity for community service yep. for serving others effectively exactly and that obviously who's <coughs> going to disagree that that is uh, uh, an ideal kind of set of or, or character type effectively for someone in um, in any kind of a representative role of yeah. representing other people. Uh, again, it's common sense. Who do you put in a position to take care of the collective interest? Someone who has proved that he's taking care of community, uh, community interest. Not someone who exhibits such level of ambition uh, recklessness, cunningness, and manipulation, i.e. selfishness, that he ends up in this position where he's supposed to take care of others. He doesn't. He doesn't take care of himself, and that's why he's there. Things mm. are reversed. Now, a few words about uh, size caps. As you mentioned, the size of a community is capped. The size of states is capped. Density, demographic density, is limited as well. The size of companies is limited as well, and the volume of profits, financial volumes. Why that? <clears throat> because, uh, obviously, megalopolis, very high demographic densities, are not conducive to the well-being of human, of individuals. Pollutions, epidemics, scarcity of resources. This balance between the megalopolis and the surrounding region. And maybe more important than, than all those factors is that psychopath hides in multitudes, in the crowd. That's why community that's one of the reasons why communities are small. Three thousand people maximum. So everybody almost everybody knows everybody. So there is observation feedback. and you cannot move this easily if your level of community point is too low you cannot move you cannot commit your bad deeds in this community before you get caught you move to another community or you move to the megalopolis where you are okay you're kind of hidden in this mass of 10 million 15 million people um, there's also a reason for this capping is to keep human sizes and to limit the emergence of superpower, superpower corporations, superpower nations, superpower community. Keep a balance, a human size manageable. Say, for example, at the corporation level, a human size um, business cannot implement chain production, uh, uh, assembly line. You cannot have a, this uh, assembly line because you don't have enough worker to specialize each worker, each worker doing the same task 1,000, 1 million times. You don't produce enough volume, enough units daily. Um, 
that's uh, these are some of the reasons why we try to keep it small. Small is beautiful. It's manageable. It's balanced, harmonious with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about uh, military? Is there a need for it, or do we live in a a completely peaceful uh, world where no one fights with anyone? Well, reality that uh, if you're a group of survivors, you don't have necessarily 100% of saints among the survivors. You may have groups that have some uh, belligerent proclivities. That is human, and that's not necessarily evil. But you have uh, you need ways to neutralize those uh, belligerent tendencies. Or to give vent to them, yeah. Or to give vent to them, yeah. To release ways. Them, essentially. Um, in any case, since the community is a very core constituent of the society, it's at this community level that armies uh, exist. That is, concretely, each community has its own militia. Each man between this age and that age, and even women between this age and that age, train regularly, practice, and constitute the community militia. They practice what? Tai Chi? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are weapons, there are guns. They are, but for example, you cannot hold a gun if you don't have a sufficient number of community points. You cannot enter the army if you have a very low number of community points, because right. this is a responsibility. Right. So uh, you practice uh, you practice uh, army stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not a specialist of the military training, but you will have military experts and military uh, coaches, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Now, the communities can provide a specific military contingent to a nation, to a state, for a specific mission and for a limited period of time in order, for example, to resolve inter-community tensions. You may have one day the emergence of a belligerent, recurrently belligerent community, and other community runners are saying, uh, he has to end, they keep attacking us, they're mm -hmm. looting, they're pillaging, uh, are we living in an ideal world or not? So, take care of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we shift the same process at the supranational level, where communities through the nations they are part of can provide a uh, international force for a limited period of time and limited uh, purpose, a specific purpose, in order to uh, clear international issues, emerge possible uh, emergence of a belligerent state. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so I mean, just going through s some of the ideas, obviously they'll do it quickly, we won't dwell on, 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 on them at any, at any great length. Um, sport, obviously sport isn't exclusively uh, a leisure activity. Uh, there's no com uh, competitive sports uh, in the sense of, uh, in, in the way there are today, for example. Yeah. <coughs> Again, it's difficult to address all those measures in detail. Yeah. Without addressing or without taking into account the cultural environment. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, let's face it, and you cannot, that's what makes us the culture, our set of beliefs, our set of unconscious reflexes. 
you can have uh, you cannot have an individual who become a saint who grew in a totally nefarious uh, cultural and environment or is very unlikely so sport again it's um it's the way we live sport is uh partly conditioned by a cultural subsectum mm -hmm. what we believe what we think is good what we think is bad and uh, as you said in post-imperialism well let's let's say first that today in our modern society sport is not sport it's not leisure it's not fun it's not playing together with uh, friends uh, of yours and uh, throwing kicking balls or uh, activities like that today sport is uh, a professional activity with a lot of money involved, with a lot of speculation, with a lot of cheeking, uh, cheating, cheating and rigging yeah. and uh, doping. It is a cultural lever that uh, strongly reinforces negative values like individualism, victory at any price, competition above all, survival of the fittest, power, strength, okay. and uh, yeah. it's also a very strong level of for distracting us from what really matters. I mean, today, the sport business, sport media is 24-hour a day, seven day a week on every screen. And it mesmerizes, it's sad, but it's true, it mesmerizes billions of people who know more about Manchester City soccer club than they know about politics of science, of philosophy. History. It fills their all brain space mm -hmm. at yeah. the expense of what really matters, as I said. Yeah, so... So there's no money in sport. There's no media uh, relays, mediatization right. for... Right, so that, that would naturally keep sport at a kind of leisure activity level yeah. at a fairly local, the, small level. Because and again, nothing. it's common sense and there's a lot of lessons from the past. When we tried to elaborate those solutions, those features, we saw that we just had to undo what had been recently done. Because in times of devolution, by undoing what was recently done, you improve the situation. And uh, we just revert back to the time when it lasted for century, the time when sport was uh, what it should have always been, a time of uh, leisure and, and happiness and, and physical activity, yeah. and maybe more important than all, of bonding. Because when you play with others, when you have fun with others, when you laugh together, well, you build trust and mm -hmm. you build proximity and you bond better. Right. And that's the cement of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about money. Every society needs money, right? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> apparently there are some societies who didn't have money, or not money per se. There are some societies, small societies, where it was bartering, Mostly, but as soon as a society is large enough, there is some stock, there is some goods that good aid that have to be bought at this uh, west end of the community, and this good B that has to be purchased on the other end. Co money really helps those kind of transactions, 
and now like for sport what we think is the best solution is very close to what has been done for centuries money indeed fluidifies trades it makes buying selling storing way easier money is not negative by nature the way it's used the way it's abused speculation the accumulation the monopolies the price manipulation uh, all that is a negative use of money but money is a kind of energy so we just revert back to what has been done for centuries if not millennia a gold back currency so you cannot print or create debt uh, without limits gold back currency that is executed ex exclusively owned and issued by the state no more private banks no interest rates because uh, interest rates leads to uh, all the abuses that we have witnessed when you start issuing interest rates it means the volume of money you're supposed to collect that it owed could we not since yeah since we since we're starting from a blank slate could we not have something other than gold what do you want armistice <laughs> that's the same okay they're the same gold uh, no it's not the same armistice. it's not the same color uh, it's, it's the same the pre <laughs> it's a different it's color it's prettier amethyst based uh, currency i think the principle is the same in the sense that uh, when you back a currency with a limited valuable good you cannot expand your monetary mass indefinitely because you have to give the amethyst right if you have 10 tons of amethyst you cannot issue the equivalent of 10 ton of amethyst in uh, in notes right i don't mind as long as we have amethyst um yeah carry on though about uh, i mean bartering is obviously a part of it no as well you don't necessarily need money for every transaction or some kind of no. for uh, transactions that are local and immediate for example you have three apples i have uh, four ranges we meet at the market the marketplace and uh, we do the exchange immediately no money is involved because no money is uh, is necessary mm -hmm. And actually, bartering, when you look at history, bartering, again, for centuries, has been a very common way of trading. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, during so-called modern times, it's a practice that is more and more prohibited. More and more prohibited. Why? For the simple reason that bartering transactions don't involve any financial transaction. So there's no trace, there's no income, there's no profit. There's no tax. Well, sounds good to me. Uh, but obviously, there's a you have a central bank that's state-owned central bank that governs these transactions in the same way that does uh, business, uh, in the same way it regulates businesses, etc. There's a there's an over, a general uh, the state in, in this sense would be a, a kind of a republican stream, a modern-day republican stream of very limited state uh, mm -hmm. uh, involvement in society because it all happens at the local level. And in a certain sense, we're, we're, we're describing here, in some respects, we're describing it the kind of so-called uh, capitalist society in that it's the individuals, uh, at the, the ordinary human beings, who, who, who work things out themselves without any kind of authority, major authority, oversight, effectively. But obviously, what, what we've removed 
is the kind of cult of the individual and uh, and, and replaced it with uh, a strong motivation to serve the local community and identification with the local community as opposed to identification with yourself. Yes, uh, yes, that's a, that's a central point. Now to recapitulate, recapitulate, starting from the top to the bottom, from the supranational to the individual, supranational level, what prevails is a moral consciousness, it's cultural values. That's a supranational thing. And within this supranational context framework, nations thrive with a total respect of ethnicity and historical differences. But they all are in resonance with those, uh, civil, let's call them civilizational values based on moral consciousness. So yeah, you have nations with all the diversity. And um, nations, states, their main role is to create the best context, the best environment for communities to strive. And the state is um, a form of positive socialism. It's a welfare state. It collects taxes and uses taxes for redistribution from the top to the bottom of the economic ladder and mostly for development of key nationalized sectors, health that is free, transportation, public transportation that is free and highly developed, energy, mining, resource, natural resources management. Okay, uh, we so, have, um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, we have uh, a caller on the line. Hi, this is, uh, Hello. Is, hi, is this um, Andres? Yes, how are you? Hi, Andres. Hello. Uh, where, do you, where, just, um, where do you fit into this uh, post-imperialist post society? Oh, I'm not sure. Well, I hope I fit, but uh, I'm not very optimistic about the future, so uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to see it, but maybe my grandchildren, uh -huh. fingers crossed. <laughs> you never know. Um, I have a comment. Yes. I um, was uh, paying attention to your discussion about money, I just wanted to mention that I watched the other day a documentary that you can actually find on YouTube, which is called The Money Fix, a monetary reform documentary. And it's quite interesting. The first half um, explains how the monetary system works nowadays with the banking system and so on, which is essentially designed in such a way that uh, there, was, there is always going to be debt. Somebody in the world is always going to be owing money because there simply is not enough um, actual money to pay all the debts around the world. So exactly. if you add up all the debt, it's like 10 or 100 times more or something ridiculous than the actual existence of money. So obviously that creates poverty. Forcibly, uh, you have to have a, a world in which poverty exists. And debt, basically, which is a form of uh, uh, being slaves, you know, to the banks. So... <clears throat> The system is, is wrong from the start in that sense. And then these guys from this documentary, they, I mean, you can tell that it was made by people who are into alternative uh, ways of, um, of money and cash and so on. So they have uh, some community projects and they explain a couple of ideas they got there. For example, some local communities in the US, I think in, in Oregon, for example, they got uh, uh, their own currencies. And they use it, but in small communities, you know, like, uh, I don't know, 
probably less than a thousand people. Um, but they actually exchange services with each other with that, and it seems to work fine. Uh, some of them have um, um, a sort of currency which is based on work, working hours. So say if somebody's a plumber, for example, and they go to your house and they work one hour for you, then that's one hour uh, paper bill, if you like. You know? And then in the end, they also explain another system, which I thought was um, quite interesting and fair, although I couldn't get a very clear idea of what um, uh, how that would work in a practical way, because it said that um, essentially if somebody in the community does a service for you, you owe it to the community. So um, say the plumber goes back again to my house, he works for an hour, that means I owe one hour work to the community. And then I go and then I perform one hour work for somebody else. Uh, I paint somebody else's uh, house, for example, for an hour. Then I, I pay it back, so I'm back in balance, so to speak. So that means that everybody is always either up or down or in balance, but you owe it to the community in general, which is a very nice idea, but the documentary didn't actually go into detail into how that would work in practical terms. For example, who would be um, actually following up on who owes how many hours work or things like that. So anyway, I think it's um, uh, worth watching anyway. Uh, so the documentary is called The Money Fix, and you can find it in YouTube. And it's got a, uh, especially the first half is a very clear explanation of why the monetary system nowadays is wrong. And then some interesting ideas afterwards. So that was it, basically. Yeah, yeah there are many um, interesting points that you brought up. Um, I want to start from interest, indeed. Uh, first, and the monetary system we devise, again, is very similar to what has been prevailing for centuries. For centuries, currency were backed by real goods, real assets, like gold. For centuries, interest called usury was forbidden, it was an illegal practice. And fractional reserve was also illegal. Fractional reserve, i.e. lending $10 when you only own like $1, because it leads to what you described. Mm -hmm. If you issue ten dollars in debt and you only own it is only one dollar in circulation, nine dollars mm -hmm. of debt will never be repaid. So it means that people who got this fake money, yet this debt, won't won't be able to default, and the bank, the private bank, will see something very real: the asset of the defaulter in a borrower, i.e., his house. So that's highly. That's very unfair system. Uh, what you brought up as well is the how the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Uh, that's one of the nefarious effects of interest. I have a lot of money I lend to people. And then I get more money when they pay me back because I have to pay interest. The ones who borrow are usually poor people who will borrow 1000 but have to repay 1200 1300 They get poorer at the end of the loan agreement. So these are mm -hmm. some of the nefarious uh, aspects of modern finance that have uh, to be uh, fixed, definitely. And now you mentioned another interesting thing, because between the use of currency, as we describe, and direct bartering, like it happened for centuries again in marketplace, in the, in the center of the village, uh, there is also the community trading system that uh, exists in Oregon and other states in the U.S., where 
to further the possibilities offered by battering, which can only be local and instantaneous, you have a, community, a group in the community that creates a community trading systems, interest-free, local credit, so you don't need direct swaps between the orange and the apples. You have some kind of uh, credits in whatever currency, Oregonian dollar or whatever you want, it's arbitrary, and that helps um, uh, making transactions that are delayed in time or that are non-local. Uh, between a seller west of Oregon and a buyer east of Oregon. So these are, and again, it's a lot of common sense and um, simple logic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Is that, we'll let you go then, uh, Andres. Okay. Okay, thanks very much, guys. Thanks. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Bye. Um... Few more details, Pierre. Um, what about what about drugs? Uh huh. What uh, if I want to smoke some banana peel? I'm not sure it would be considered as drugs in uh, post-imperialism, but other substances definitely would. So, again, we train not to be uh, in a fantasy idealistic world. There are weapons, there are armies, there are drugs as well. And then there are some people who want to use drugs. Uh, Today, drugs is mostly controlled by uh, CIA and similar organization. Uh, so it funds the worst activities conducted by humans against humans, the torture, the secret uh, uh, jails, the coup in various countries, the guerrillas and the mercenaries. So. This money should not go in such nefarious hands. Um, plus, there's no control. There's no when you buy wine, when you buy food. Sometimes there's some trustability. You have some mm. ideas about the content, about what you put in your body. Mm. That's not the case with drugs. So the idea is that the state control the production, delivery, and the use of drugs. It means that people who want to use drugs can use drugs in some of uh, drug enclaves. Well, it wouldn't be encouraged, though. Not at all, but that's why it's always difficult to talk about operational measure mm -hmm. without addressing the cultural context. Mm -hmm. Because, okay, we can say drugs are allowed in enclave where it's safe, where it's distributed, where it's controlled by the state. But in this enclave, you cannot earn community points. So... There's a strong incentive, since community points are the main tangible uh, incentive to gain more rights, more status, more recognition. Well, once you go there, you don't gain points. But surely, so surely, the sale of, go there. surely the sale of drugs should be just simply prohibited. Surely, it, the state should could. Not, surely the state should not manufacture them and supply them to anyone. It could, but uh, we know where prohibition leads. Like Chicago, the 20s or the 30s, you will have individuals, you will have clandestine production mm. with no quality, with uh, no traceability, mm. and uh, users who hide. And uh, since they cannot get needles, they use old needles and get more disease. And uh, so I think 
if there is drug to be used, it has to be used in the best environment, mm. safe and clean. And uh, above all, as you say, the most important is intangible. Mm. Is the question we should ask is, are people going? Are people using drugs? Are they drug addicts? Another question is, why do people end up as drug addicts? And science is very, it's clear and clearer today. People fall into drug addiction because they don't have this bonding, mm -hmm. this exchange, this this warmth, this love, so this we, nurturing. Right. And when you rehabilitate what has been existing for millennia, the family bond, the mm. community bond, when from the first day when you're born until your adulthood, you live in this supportive, positive, warm, human, highly social environment, mm -hmm. I think the desire for drugs disappear because drug actually is this substitute. We live such cold, individualistic, isolated lives that drug is our substitute, is the substance that makes us forget for a while this craving and this big hole, this mm -hmm. thing that is missing and that is so important to us. What about um, what about strange cultural practices or hangovers maybe from religious practices like uh, circumcision and uh, anything of that nature? Um, if uh, uh, what, what would you do? <laughs> circumcision is a barbaric, traumatizing. Um, thing mm. that is uh, implemented at the worst time during the imprinting phase of the of the toddler and uh, toddlers need the nurturing, caring, love and uh, softness they don't need uh, to be mutilated so and further on a more global level the way to address religion in post-imperialism it that science, surprisingly, is not about scientist uh, materialism or scientist atheism. Science encompasses all the fields, including the fields that are today taboo, like metaphysics or parapsychology. And from the discoveries made in these fields, it suggests the best rituals, the best rites, creates a religion that is the most conducive to what? connect individuals followers to higher to their higher centers higher realities higher realities, to more to true spirituality so it's exactly and a religion in the post imperialist world would be um would be a marriage of science and uh, mysticism or science yeah. and, and and true religion yeah. where science would serve religious uh, or spiritual investigation effectively uh, and vice versa. And, and vice versa. When you they think would about form it. each other, yes. How many... I mean, the, the, the science could determine certain things uh, that... that uh, spiritual things that apply physically, for example. They can investigate uh, scientifically through scientific uh, sci scientific processes, etc. You know, whatever. In the same way they do today, but it would be with, uh, with, with a more broad and open scientific mindset. Uh, and it would be... Uh, it would effectively you'd see a merging of of science and, and and the idea today of spirituality or power moralism. I think one of the things that was said that would um, was that um, 
was that science would science's primary focus would be on on paranormal or metaphysics effectively uh, i mean this is assuming that all of the science that we have today will still be to a certain extent understood or or or, or maybe available you know the, the scientific development we have today yeah. but it will be taken to the to the the next level that it should already ha- already have been uh, at which is investigating kind of effectively the non-physical world and investigating the spiritual side of, of, of human beings and facilitating that kind of spiritual development mm-hmm. within humans. And then that would in turn feed back into science to further scientific research based on the, the, the experiences or the, 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 the knowledge gained with, from, from a human perspective of, of spirituality, etc. Um, yeah. But yeah. but then that brings up the question of 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 drugs again. I mean, is it possible <clears throat> because I mean, in our in the, okay, it's somewhat fringe, but certainly the CIA etc. have investigated the use of 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 drugs, not in any kind of benevolent scientific research or, or spiritual research, but uh, the CIA have been investigating that kind of thing in terms of um, mm-hmm. drugs that uh, affect uh, that are psychoactive, effectively. Um, and also, there's the fringe kind of community of experimentation with uh, psychotropic drugs for spiritual enlightenment, etc. So it's possible that that would be part of it, but it would it would it would still be constrained by uh, a kind of a, a moral scientific approach to the matter, in the sense that. Uh, there would be no dangerous uh, use of drugs, etc. It would not be exploitative, etc. It would only serve the the foundational goal of increasing genuine, real, and beneficial, I think is the most important point, beneficial spiritual development. Yes? <clears throat> yeah. About science, now you, you mentioned rightly a, a reorientation Scientific, the priorities served by scientific research. Um, the paranormal metaphysics is a uh, priority topic. Others are too. Uh, when you think about it, the modern world is seriously lacking efficient energy production and management. The world as a whole is basically burning oil in uninsulated building and inefficient cars uh, endlessly. And it's a serious environmental, not talking about global warming here, and uh, and health consequences. So that's one factor. And uh, <clears throat> again, it's very simple. Uh, it's common sense. It's, uh, science is not furthering political agenda or propaganda topics. Like global warming, today, if you work in a lab, in a weather or meteorology laboratory, if you propose some research that tend to justify, demonstrate the myth of man-made global warming, you receive millions. If on the contrary, your scientists, maybe honest scientists, who have some healthy and actually legitimate doubts about man-made global warming, and you want to to further your investigation, you won't get a penny. So, no, science is not here to serve the status quo, the position of uh, illegitimate elite, 
the ignorance of the masses, science is a very important tool to improve human condition, life on Earth in general. Another topic that is too neglected in uh, mainstream science, modern science, is uh, environment. How to design industrial processes, manufacturing processes, building processes that are respectful of nature and resources. Okay. Um, what about, uh, um, we've touched on this in terms of military and uh, military service to a certain extent, etc. But what about uh, the connection between countries? Is there some kind of a, a supranational uh, organization that facilitates international cooperation, etc. The idea of yes. keeping, to a certain extent, homogenizing a certain, at least in broad terms, a, a general global perspective of all people on the planet. Because ultimately it's one planet and we're one people. Yes. It's a multipolar world. At the nation level, you have a different political decision, a different history, different culture, um, different social uh, specifics. But at a supranational level, and what is lacking today in our world is, a sh is shared civilizational values. Today, the world is fragment fragmented. Basically, you have the pro-US, or you have the with the US, or against the US. And the civilizational values of the US are anthropic values. It's about domination, it's about cunning, it's about lies. So in this post-imperialistic world, at a supranational level, you have a, a UN-like body that harmonizes the relations between nations and above all, that is a guarantor of those uh, civilizational values. Within this framework, nations are free to make their own decisions, economic and financial and um, uh, political levels. Mm -hmm. And what about um, when we talked at the beginning when we were outlining the problems with the current imperialistic uh, structure or on the planet, the problem in the broad sense is psychopaths in positions of power. Of course, you might have psychopaths uh, in a post-imperialistic world. Uh, how, and we mentioned this, touched on this at the beginning, or you touched on this during when you were talking earlier on about how uh, in smaller communities they would not be able to hide so easily in the uh, people of, of a deviant nature and entrenched uh, deviant nature would, would be more easily spotted, but uh, when they're spotted um, a, a, and it becomes a real issue, what would be the process of dealing with that particular problem? Well, here again, instead of focusing on uh, one measure, we have to emphasize again the, the importance of culture. And... Uh, Spotting psychopath has to become a the result of a cultural traits. That is, again, we are talking about science, psychology, along with sociology and history called soft science, but that's so important to to create a truly positive civilization uh, and way of life. 
science also focus strongly on psychology and psychopathology. Psychopathology is not a taboo or a twisted topic in some uh, uh, Hollywood movies. It is a serious matter. And people learn about it in school. They learn about it in their family. They learn about it in their community. There are parables and accounts and poems and books and uh, accounts and uh, about psychopathology. People, because of cultural factors, they're immersed in a culture that is aware of psychopathology. And because of these cultural factors and other organizational factors, like it's not easy to move from one community to another one, like the limited size of community. And maybe the more in, most important thing, that because people are not so polarized anymore, because people stop thinking like psychopaths, People are not brainwashed into thinking that negative psychopathic values, the recklessness, the lie, the cunningness the, are positive and they stop absorbing them that by contrast, once they get decontaminated from these polarizing agents, they're more able to see, oh, well, what I saw here, that is not normal. Mm. That is not so how that, my friend, how so my family, my community and me behave. There's something wrong here. So that's, ident yes. that's identifying it as a problem. But my question was uh, what the solution to it would be. Now, I mean, of course, there's enough, there's science, uh, you know, scientific research into psychopathology today has identified, well, there's one, this one, one, one theory on it uh, that is backed up by some hard evidence that it's a genetic predisposition and therefore not exactly correctable in that sense. But and and by the same token, it's 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 spread through genetics. So I mean, it's possible that one solution to it would be that uh, someone who was scientifically or clinically diagnosed as being psychopathic would uh, be somewhere in somewhere or other prevented from procreating. Yeah, yeah. That's um, sterilization is a uh, certainly if there's a big if. If psychopathy can be diagnosed, but with a new focus of science, it may be possible to diagnose in a sure way uh, people who carry the psychopathy gene or genes. Sterilization is a is a human solution, and uh, that may enable this civilization to eradicate the psychopathology problem within a few generations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, I mean, there's various other details about this, um, about this post-imperialistic world and how it could be structured. And it's all fairly, uh, as you said at the beginning, it's all quite uh, prosaic and uh, and and natural in terms of its its of the description of it. It's it's, it's not rocket science, really. It's it's quite simple because especially when you begin with the foundation of um, the most important thing to human beings is uh, a sense of community and attachment and connection with, with, with other human beings and, and it being all on a positive level. And there's so many other ways that society could be structured that would uh, create the conditions where most people, certainly the vast majority of people, could live very happy and contented and fulfilling lives. Mm -hmm. So it's not rocket science and... 
it only seems so strange to us today because we live in such a dystopian world where everything is, is so effectively anti-human. Uh, but it's really not strange uh, uh, or not difficult to, to, to see how this could be developed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and, and there's one other aspect, which is obviously, we kind of touched on it, but ed education is, uh, is, is, is of, of extreme importance, the, the, the rearing of children, because they are, I mean, this is talked about even in our own society, about children being the, you know, the future, et cetera, that kind of thing, and that's, that is very true and very important, so rearing uh, children and educating them in a, in a particular way uh, with the, instilling in them the values that facilitate and, and continue a, a positive society based on community yeah. uh, community spirit effectively is, is would be very important. Yeah, no. <coughs> Human minds tend to compartmentalize. So we tend to restrict education to school, for example, to the quarantine. And uh, like culture, education is multifactorial. And uh, you see the drama today, they are good parents. They want good. They know where they want. They know what to deliver to the kids. It's not, it's, they know it's beneficial. But they're fighting against the rest of the world, the rest of the cultural factors. If you have good parents, but a nefarious school, and nefarious friends, and nefarious TV, and uh, if the parents push in one direction and all the rest push in the other direction, it's a lost cause. So, again, uh, it can only be a systemic approach. Education is uh, is everywhere, from many sources. It's what you see in the media when you're a kid. It's what your parents say. It's what your relatives say. It's what the community members say. It's what you learn in school. All that are sources of education. And maybe the, the main tenet of formal education in the school system is that uh, you don't work anymore on the acquisition of data. You still acquire data, but more fun, you work on, on a meta level. You don't teach this or that to the children. You teach them how to learn. You try to instill in them this curiosity, this critical thinking, this creativity, this self-confidence, this capacity to work with others, to trust with others, to network, to research. Is the You try to work on not the data you put in the memory storage area, but the thinking it's a higher level mm -hmm. yeah well um <clears throat> i don't think i mean you, you've written an article that has outlined the points uh it's always an exhaustive list of 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 all of the details of such a society and how it will be organized but it's a broad outline i think and it's it's very it's a very um it's very intuitive in the sense that it's 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 like we were saying it's it's not rocket science. It's very very um, it's a very simple and and uh, self evidently um, positive uh, structure for our society. So um, and I and I think this this we're going to say something. Uh, yeah, along your lines, it's a it's a thought experiment. It's an ongoing process. It's organic, so. It's not uh, set in stone no, at all. But and um, uh, what I wanted to emphasize is that uh, it's a message of hope in this bleak world. It's uh, maybe uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. 
a society we aspire to and that may become reality and uh, here is what I wanted to say mostly that any reality in this world today the greatest achievements and the worst all started with one same thing an idea so we should not underestimate the power of ideas and if we want one day a post-imperial society to exist we have to start with the first step mm -hmm. the idea yeah there's one last question from from uh, laurel on on the, on the chat he was wondering about why only hetero couples ha or could have children uh, and do we think that without so many toxins there might be less gender confusion <laughs> it's well it's possible that toxins well, have to do with gender confusion yeah that's a factor certainly yeah yeah toxin and all the endocrine disruptors in food, in water, in, uh, it doesn't help the situation. This being said, uh, we, we thought about it, and I think it was Laura's idea. It made sense to me again. Simple logic. The marriage consecrates a soul resonance at a soul level. And a soul can incarnate in a man, in a woman. Twin souls can be the same gender. So homosexual marriage is a possibility because it's supposed to unite two souls mm -hmm. besides any consideration of gender. However, on a biological, physiological level, only men and women can make children. And uh, at the, so in this sense, homosexual couples can marry, but they cannot adopt and raise children. You try to follow the, you try to discern the explicit or implicit law of nature, basically. And work in harmony with it. With yeah, it. what nature dictates effectively in that respect. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was just going to say uh, on your on your previous point, just to kind of wrap up a little bit. The, uh, it's a very, I think it's a very useful. Um, some people might see it as as a fanciful, uh, you know, imagination or uh, a fanciful idea of. Of the future, and you know, but it's not simply about. Um, of course, it's you know we, the the possibility for for implementing such a society. Okay, we've described the kind of uh, the state of the planet and the, the the history, the historical record of civilizational collapses, and you know it's not unreasonable, therefore, to think about the idea of rebuilding a society on on a different basis, but. I think it's a very useful exercise to simply go through it and for people to read about it and to think about it themselves because on on the one hand it can help people to understand and think about their own values, the values they have maybe internalized from our current dystopian society uh, and, also, and, and therefore to also to bring out uh, you know, uh, the rights and wrongs of those and what really are truly beneficial and what are not, what values are, are, are good from a human perspective and what or not, but uh, it also serves in the same in the same way to to highlight or to bring into sharper focus just how dystopian and corrupt and uh, degraded our current society is. Because when you juxtapose uh, these ideas of of an ideal society and look at them in comparison to to what we have today, it really brings into sharp focus just how uh, far from even a, a, a semi 
positive and, uh, and nurturing uh, humanistic society uh, that, that we have today. You know how far we've come from that, and how, how far we are from it in, in, our, in our society today. So, uh, I think it's a very, a very useful exercise and a very beneficial thing. And who's who's to say? that uh, there may not be a possibility to actually uh, implement some of, of these ideas uh, for someone at yeah. some point. In the last part of the Earth Change and Human Conflict Connection, we developed those points more extensively that I'm going to do now. <coughs> but in a nutshell, we must not forget the influence of mind over matter, as proved by psychokinesis experiment, in particular collective psycho kinesis uh, experiments when a group of individuals is collinear enough sharing same values same vision of the dystopian world today same hopes a post-imperialistic society for example same emotions with hope and this despair mm -hmm. this love these aspirations yeah, the most they important can. thing being an emotional investment in a different world. Yes. This can have an influence of, on reality. At least on the reality experienced by this group. It means that a possibility, and that's part of mainstream science, is the existence of splitting realities, splitting universes for different groups, holding to simplify different beliefs. Yes, indeed. Well, I think, like as you said, I think it was, it was a very good uh, exercise. It is a very good exercise. It's something that we should uh, we should talk about uh, in a general sense. People should talk about it. Uh, well, if you've got someone you can talk about it with, it's a very useful exercise to talk about people with that. Although you may not have many people who are who are that disenchanted with the current society. But um, certainly it's, it's something that we talk about and we will continue to talk about on our show here and on our forum and elsewhere. Um, but I think for now we're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you, Pierre, for coming on and sharing your uh, insights and your, your thoughts with us on this topic. Uh, and thanks to Andres, our caller, for calling in, and to all of our chatters. We will be back next week with another show. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone.